0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Roger's News.
1: You're listening to The Views Room, a podcast brought to you by the staff of Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Seba, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hey, Anthony. Hi, Jen. A bit later in the program, our colleagues in Asia are going to take you through the business ramifications of the Hong Kong protests, most notably the departure of Cathay Pacific's CEO. But before we pass the mic to Asia, we're going to discuss all those flashing warning signs that suggest a downturn is on the way. We have with us in the studio Richard Beals to help us decipher what this could all mean. Hi, Richard. Hi. All right. So let's first turn to the um, inverted yield curve.
2: Well, this is when long-term yields fall below short-term yields. Okay.
1: So stop.
2: Yes. <laughs> Our head's already exploding. No, it
1: really is because I've I've been reading a lot about this and I still cannot really wrap my head around what does this mean? Like just take a step back.
2: What does this say about the economy? If you lend somebody money, if you're a bank, you lend somebody money. Okay. Right? Lending them somebody money for a year. Okay. Is less risky, you might think, than lending somebody money for five years or ten years. You know, circumstances can change in that time. So the risk of repayment or not getting repaid in full ought to be higher the longer you're lending for. That's the theory, which means that in a a normal-shaped yield curve, as they like to call it, long-term yields are higher than short-term yields. Now, when they flip, I'm not sure people really know what that means, but what we do know is that when it's happened between, uh, say, 10-year U.S. government bonds and two-year U.S. government bonds, that has coincided with a, a time period, a recession following within some period, which isn't exact.
1: Okay. So this, this happened last week, right? Was that the right. first time that this flipped?
2: Yeah, I think it was. Um, for, it's, the, for, the two, it's, for the two year yeah, versus 10 year, It's, yes. it's very close. It's okay. it, I mean, it's been very close a couple of times. But if you look at the chart, it's like, yeah, the last few months is when the, the gap has shrunk basically to zero. And we're just Sort of waiting for it to go below that zero, and okay. that's
0: that's why the market's freaked out last week about it because for some reason traders seem to like this particular two-year versus ten-year um, metric, whereas some of the purists, the academic, academics or whatever, will say we prefer the, the the one which compares what you can what it costs to borrow for three months versus five years, and that actually has been inverted for the past two or three months which looks actually a lot worse
1: okay so we have the inverted yield curve with uh, the two-year and 10year yep. treasury note which the last time this happened was right before the recession in 2008 right, right. okay so the shorter term yield curve is inverted as well yep. um, so what Anthony what does this all mean like in terms of how do you put this in um, perspective from other recessions that we've had?
0: Well, it's it's tricky, right? If you look at if you look at the, the two year ten year, I think the stats are Richard correct me if I'm wrong. It's um, that, that that inversion has I think over a certain period of time. I don't think we're going to take just one quick flip in one day, but over a certain period of time, say a month or two months, has been used to predict in retrospect five the past five recessions. There's also one time where it inverted where it. A recession didn't follow, so it's not as if it's always accurate. But in the past, it's had a lot of accuracy. So we're thinking, okay, if this is happening to at least two of the yield curves now, at least one of them long term, one of them intermittently at the moment, it looks bad. But it might not be as as reliable as it used to be. Okay, think, now uh, why yeah. is
1: that? Because I've I've, I've heard that there's uh, a reason behind that, and it has to do with the government buying more bonds. Well, is that so
2: correct? interest rates have been. Very unusually low ever since the crisis, as everybody knows who is a saver yep. or, or indeed a borrower <laughs> um, and that and very low inflation uh, both may factor into you know the, the the famous phrase this time could be different mm-hmm. um, also we don 't really know. It's not like an inverted yield curve causes a recession. It happens to occur before a recession. So we don't know if there's what the levers may be that are causing one thing and the other. So it's it's hard to say this means a recession is coming. It has meant a recession is coming. But but the some of the underlying things that really do matter to the economy, like interest rates, like inflation, have behaved. And indeed, the length of this recovery, which is the longest in history uh, between recessions, uh, factor into it the possibility that it's different this time.
1: OK. Now, this isn't the only signal that we have that we could possibly in, be in a recession. There are other flashing warning signs. So let's go through some of those. Um, first of all, it's a PMI for manufacturer, manufacturing, right. manufacturers, yes, right? The
2: Purchasing Managers Index is what they call it. But it's a sort of amalgam of different manufacturing indicators, uh, output. Uh, prices, employment, things like that. And that's at its lowest. Um, they, they have this index system where 50 is kind of a dividing line. If it's above 50, it's a generally okay outlook. If it's below 50, it's kind of a negative outlook. Um, it's just still just above 50, but it, nonetheless, it's at its lowest level since 2009 coming out of the crisis.
1: Okay. Um, Anthony, you also did a piece last week about banks and how you can look at the banks and kind of also see some troubled areas right. uh why don't you take us through what exactly if you, you take all the major banks yeah and what do they tell you
0: again we're, we're looking at a what what for most people going to be a wonky metric is called book value and that basically means um what is a bank worth if you took the if you subtracted the assets from its liabilities. In other words, if this bank were to be broken up and sold tomorrow, it should get at least this amount back, i.e. the loans it carries, the the securities it holds. And in general, in the past, um, going below book value implies there's a problem. It implies, in the past, usually it's meant um, you've got problem loans, they're not worth as much as we thought they were, or you're going to have a lot of write-downs, or the bonds you're holding, whatever it is, they're just not worth... um, what you think they're worth at the moment. And we investors are going to mark that down and we do it by putting the shares down. Increasingly though, and this is again since the last crisis, same with the yield curve. It's just we've got so many things getting in the way of what we used to think made that a good metric. So um, if you look at previous recessions, it was rare for um, a bank's book value to go below One times book value until the recession had happened. Mm -hmm. This time, if you think there's a recession coming, we're looking, well, well, look at the book values now. At one point last week, four of the top five banks were actually below book value, and we're not in a recession. So you think, my God, this must be crazy, which means we're really in trouble. The problem, though, with that, it's twofold. Firstly, two of them: City and Goldman were already below book value. City, because it generally can't get away from the impression in people's minds that it always hits the next crisis, and it's been like that for ten, because 10 years. Because it's so
1: big, or no, just because it lumbering? always hits
0: for thirty years. It's hit every single crisis that's ever happened, right? Okay. So it just can't avoid them. Okay. Um, and Goldman, frankly, Goldman's been involved in this uh, scandal in Malaysia, uh, where how much money they may have to pay out if they do any is weighing on investors' minds. So that's low. But also. Most of these banks have struggled to earn enough money over the past 10 years to cover their cost of capital, the cost of operations. So if you can't do that, you probably shouldn't trade above book value. And that's only changed since the tax cuts came in a couple of years ago here in the US, where they started most of them earning a bit more. And JP Morgan's still looking very good, frankly. So again, out of the yield curve, there are reasons to look at it and go, OK, this is worrying, but also reasons to go, actually, this is nowhere near as bad as it used to be. So should we worry about that?
1: OK, so you bring up another good point, which are the tax cuts that were enacted in 2017, which is supposed to be the great generator of of markets and everything and what have you. It seems to completely be petering out, the the effects of this uh, tax cut. Um, Richard, what are some of the things you've been looking at that you can kind of point to and say, like, this is not all that is cracked
2: up to be. Well, I think with the tax cuts, you do have to recognize that investors have shortish memories. And, and what happened with the tax cuts was one year, for one year, banks looked at, or not just banks, companies looked a lot better than they had looked because their profit went up because their taxes had gone down, not right. because anything fundamental had improved, although some fundamental things had also improved. So for four quarters, you get that generous comparison, and then it goes away because you're back to comparing now with the, the quarter that was already better for the taxes. So, investors have short memories. That's one reason they're less enthusiastic once the tax cuts are one year in. Um, it was supposed to boost the economy. Some of its supporters even thought the tax cuts would pay for themselves. I mean, that's clearly not going to happen. Right. Uh, we have deficits rising and so on. Again, that's not a recession indicator, but it just shows that growth is not as fast as some people thought it might be as a result of the tax cuts. But it's still, we should recognize, it's still pretty steady. This has been a long recovery. You've still got economic growth running 2% or more, at least for the US, which is not bad. Global growth is actually higher than that because there are Developing
1: yeah.
2: um, economies out there growing faster, but that has been downgraded. The Global picture has been downgraded a couple of times, which is one of the to come back to one of the negative things that people like the World Bank have downgraded their forecasts for the economic growth everywhere by a couple of times this year already.
1: And and that also has to play in with the trade war that President. Sure, Donald and that's Trump, one I of the reasons started, they've right? downgraded
2: I mean, it because of the, the worry that. Or the reality that trade is going to uh, reduce and reduce economic activity.
1: Yeah, which I, I think that I, the past couple of forecasts I've seen basically are now kind of taking into account. This thing is happening. Right. There's no walking walking yeah, it back for a while. That it, also it, gets in the gets
0: least. into the debate about whether it, w- what causes a recession. Okay, we're just, it's not, not going to go too much into into the theory here, but um, is it um, is it economic output by say the uh, manufacturing and services centre? I mean, businesses account for, what, a third of GDP, whereas consumers account for two thirds in the US? Or is it because of some kind of financial problem? Um, and mostly it's financial problems that do it. And if you, OK, the, the banks aren't trading too well at the moment. But if you look at another indicator of the banks, it's called the TED spread, another wonky thing that we used to look at during the financial crisis. And that shows how much above the short term interest rate banks will lend to each other at. And that got really bad, like a five percentage point gap almost in 2008, 2009. It's now about a fifth of a percentage point, which is nothing. So if you think that is meant to indicate a credit risk... So people aren't worried field, about banks. Yeah, and, and by extension, there's no big worries about a broader credit risk. Now, of course, if you get a, a general slowdown from industry that will probably expose a certain number of companies that are sort of, not necessarily teetering on the edge now, but certainly have strained balance sheets or where their margins are very low. They will get strained, and that may well uh, propel us into something of a recession. But at the moment, and I hesitate to say this because who knows what's going to happen, but at the moment, if there were one, the signs kind of indicate that if it's manufacturing or, or industry-led, it probably will be a bit more like 2000, and, well, 2000, 2001, i.e. short, and not too painful compared to the Great Recession of 10 years ago. But that's, you know, again, we're still looking at in, uh, imperfect metrics.
1: OK, so Richard, what defines a recession?
2: Right, so I think, you know, any any report that uh, a GDP the economy is shrinking is going to, Set alarm bells off, through, but the official definition or the working definition that people use is two quarters of uh, shrink, a shrinking economy. Yeah, if you look at Germany, for
0: example, this week it, it announced that its second quarter it shrank by 0.1, 0.2 percentage points. So, really, right on the cusp, but that really looks bad. Eight, Germany is meant to be the sort of the, the power engine of Europe's economy. Yeah. So you, you may think, okay, six months is what we really care about, but I think these days we look at these things and go, okay, so we're kind of there, um, but officially we're not. But you can, this feel is there, right? And that's part of the issue of what we're all sort of dancing around here for. The US recession is, if we talk about it, it'll be getting there. Well, if everyone's talking about it, people are worried about it. So, does a time definition really, is it really what people are looking for, or they just think once we see those negative numbers, we're going to go for it and say, but
2: as you you, you raised a point earlier, which I think is important too, which is that a big, huge majority chunk of the U.S. economy is driven by consumers. Mm. And we've got you know, wages, sort of the, the absence of wage inflation or the sort of relatively modest wage inflation has been a sort of mystery about this long recovery. But nonetheless, employment is very full. It's been pretty easy for most people to find jobs. There's People aren't firing much. You know, There's the, the, still more jobs being created every month. Unemployment rate is bouncing along at a historically low level. The consumer side is not suffering.
0: Yeah, and on look at the debt side, it's not looking that bad either. Yes, you can see some uh, borrowing uh, issues and some delinquencies on auto loans and credit cards, but we're talking about coming off exceptionally low levels that have been there for a very long time. So it'd be hard for them to go much lower. So if you go up from, say, two percentage points of delinquencies to three percentage points, that's still pretty good. It's just that the quantum shift feels bad from where we are. That doesn't mean that's going to drive us into a recession. It just means people aren't as well off as they were a year ago.
1: So taking everything that we just said, the inverted yield curves of various benchmarks, um, falling PMI indexes, what do you think is going to happen? Do you well, think we're I, in a recession or not? I,
0: well, I don't think we are, but I, I, I'm a journalist I'm and therefore a natural pessimist. Um, so I, I kind of feel like we're heading towards one. Although I can look at lots of indicators to tell me not to worry about it as much. You know, Richard, look at the soybean prices between Brazil and the US recently. That's looking pretty good. Earnings, adjusted earnings, to the S and P five hundred is looking pretty good on est- on forward estimates. But yeah, I'm an I'm a natural pessimist, so I think you know I'm I'm not going to be spending much money in the next few months.
2: I mean. Of course, there'll be one eventually. The economic cycle is not dead. I think the question is, are these signals like the yield curve that everyone was jumping on? Are they signaling a recession any time, let's say, in the next few quarters? And, you know, we, it's it's a cardinal rule of journalism that time will tell is a kind of a lazy crutch. But, yeah, I'll, I'll reach for it. In this case, I have to say it. Time will tell.
1: OK, so, Richard, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Jen. I'm Pete Sweeney.
3: I'm here in Hong Kong talking with my fellow columnist Clara Ferrara Marquez about the recent ructions which have begun to infect corporate boardrooms in the city, um, most specifically Cathay. There's also pressure on the big four auditors. Cathay seems to have a a bit of a, a major head churn with Chief Executive Rupert Hogg and one of his top deputies have abruptly resigned over the participation of employees in protests against a controversial extradition law with China. Clara, what's your take?
4: Well, um Cathay Pacific, so the unofficial flag carrier of Hong Kong has really been caught in the crossfire here and in, on Friday what we saw was the extremes probably of what we thought was possible, really an unprecedented intervention from Beijing in a Hong Kong corporate. So What we saw was the departure of CEO Rupert Hogg and Paul Luce, the Chief Commercial Officer, Very significantly, the news came out first on CCTV, so on Chinese state television, and then to the Hong Kong exchange from Cathay. So it was very clear where the pressure was coming from. And it is, as you say, in response to the company's uh, how the company has dealt with the involvement of its employees in protests and probably the occupation and violence in the airport didn't help either.
3: Now, they've also fired some pilots, yes, and there's pressure on other employees. And, And this seems to be a trend that's wider than Cathay as well. I know that some of the big four auditors are under pressure from Beijing. Some of their employees apparently took out, a uh, on their own recognizant, took out an ad that was supporting the protesters. Beijing is now leaning on them to terminate or somehow get rid of employees that are supporting the protest. How does this play out for financial corporations dealing with China?
4: Well, I mean, let's think about the people who are based here. So the large corporations that have roots in Hong Kong have large bodies of staff in Hong Kong. So Cathay has 27,000 people, most of them based here in Hong Kong, and a client base, which is in the mainland, or a, a regulator also in the mainland. So... That might apply to Cathay, it applies to HSBC, it might apply to some of the other so-called Hongs, so the large conglomerates, Jardine Matheson, uh, Hutchison to some extent. So really all of them will be the first in line, but then the auditors, anyone whose financial services also depend on their ability to operate in China. I mean, which how hard is it
3: for them to, to give in on this one? They're doing so much business in the mainland these days. I mean, is this something they could push back on or realistically did they have to go as far as they did?
4: Cathay, absolutely. They had Almost no choice. If we're realistic about what you can do, if the civil aviation authority in Beijing tells you that you have to have your crew list check, not only if you're going to fly to the mainland, but also if you are flying in Chinese airspace. Now, think about where Cathay is based physically. That's almost impossible.
3: Well, and they've got a big shareholder in the background, right? Air China. How does this work out for that?
4: Well, so Air China has just under 30% of Cathay, and Cathay, in exchange, also has a a, a smaller stake in in Air China. But the really interesting thing is that for a long time, people have talked about the sort of theoretical possibility of an Air China-Cathay merger, or an Air China takeover of Cathay, or Swire in some way, reducing its, its stake. Certainly now it looks a lot less challenging, and that Cathay would be doing it from a position of weakness.
3: And how does this play out for Swire? This is owned by a Hong, and they have the majority. But of course, Cathay has been having a bunch of problems. Could there be a silver lining?
4: Well, um, Cathay is at the end of a three-year turnaround program, which has has been reasonably successful. And in large part, that was down to Rupert Hogg, who's now out of the boardroom. But the pressures that they're facing are, you know, A lot of airlines in this region are facing them, especially those that, like Cathay, don't have a domestic market. If you think about the trade war, it will affect any airline with a significant cargo operation, and Cathay is a very significant freight carrier. All
3: right. Well, thanks for talking to me, Clara.
0: That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Richard Beals, Pete Sweeney, and Clara Ferreira-Marquez. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Freddie Joyner, and Sydney Barbera. A final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes or wherever you snag your podcasts from. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.